The word that comes up for me all the time is elegance. This thing is so elegant, really. What is the prospect of a change to the forward agreement, to the deferral of um, gains to the end of the period? I mean, that's been around a long time and it's very fundamental. That's been used most widely by the largest Canadian banks, 2008. Um, that was when the government expanded the rules, added what was called Section 38A.3, and A.3 was specifically the section we rely upon. And what did it say? It said, for investors who've invested in limited partnership units, where the limited partnership unit value based on the investment has grown, where there's been capital appreciation, even though these are non-publicly traded units, we're going to encourage you as an investor to give it to a charity, and we're going to facilitate it in a mechanism that you exchange your units for mutual fund trust units first, which effectively makes them quasi-public because they're, liquid they're able to be liquidated on a moment's notice. And then you donate those to a charity, which then has the right to immediately liquidate them. And that satisfied their policy objective. Hi, my name is Dave Sanderson. Welcome to the Red Jacket Podcast. At Red Jacket, we believe wealth is the fountainhead of flourishing, not just for you and your family, but for a society. We work with clients who want to grow and protect that wealth. And the greatest destroyer of that wealth is taxation, direct taxation, income tax, corporate tax, and indirect taxation, inflation, which is built into the fiat monetary system. On this podcast, we share with you our insights, our experience, and our relationships, not just so that you can fight those forces, but so that you can exploit them. We hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. One of the absolute most important elements of this is the, the fact that you're investing in what I call a very tax-efficient limited partnership. And that derives from the fact that you're investing in an instrument, being a forward contract, or a linked note. We tend to use a forward contract, but they're very similar which as it grows over time, grows based on formulas or portfolios that are notional, analyze and determine ultimately at a point in time in the future what the value of that contract's gonna be. But from day one until maturity, there's really no way to value what that amount is gonna be. And that factual reality allows a very special tax result. Most investments you would need if there's income every year to claim the income every year. Or if they were to grow on a straight line basis such that you knew what it was going to do every year, you would in many cases have to bring that income in for tax purposes and claim it every year, even if you weren't receiving the money. This structure avoids those requirements simply because the growth on the contract, which is the forward contract, is computed by reference to fluctuating variables, being portfolios, that move daily throughout the day. If you were to choose a point in time, you could assess the theoretical notional value at that point in time, but five minutes later it's going to move. As a result, these fluctuations mean that you can't determine any minimum or maximum value of that contractual obligation before maturity. That allows us to defer all of the income until the point in time that we terminate in the 10th year. 
By deferring that income, it means that any additional tax benefits you claim along the way are free from being reduced by the claiming of income at the same time. So that brings me to the interest expense. Let's just stop there because I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of the listener. That was that was very dense, very accurate. Uh, said more simply, all the money that I'm investing in this limited partnership, I don't have to worry about having to pay tax on any increase in value in that portfolio until the end of the period. Correct. 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 And that's by way of forward agreement. And there's nothing super special about that. We people use forwards all the time. So, Correct. So this element where the there is a deferral of any earned any accretion in economic value is via the forward agreement and um, not particularly frontierish in the tax world and you know, has been uh, uh, adjudicated in Kassan, too? Was part of the Kassan case? Yes. Okay, and part uh, of the it settlement was, it and was part of the Gowling's the core of Kassan. Okay, so that one is solid. So here we are recognizing, and you're going to do this one next, we're recognizing the interest expense on an ongoing basis, but the reason we get to write that off is because we're investing in a portfolio, but we don't have to pay the gains on the portfolio until the end. Correct. Correct? Okay. So let's go now to the second piece, which is deducting the interest expense. So the, the deductibility of interest is also well accepted in Canadian law based on several cases. But in particular, there's sort of two pivotal cases, the Supreme Court of Canada, one of them is Shell Canada. I'd say the one that's probably more applicable here specifically is Ludco Enterprises, the Ludmer family, it's a Supreme Court of Canada case that effectively enumerates the fact that as long as you borrow money to invest and the investment you make has a reasonable expectation of generating income, not net income, not profit, but income. The case also makes it clear that it doesn't matter if you actually generate income. What matters is on the day you bought it. Was there a reasonable likelihood that what you were investing in, based on a number of reasonable parameters that you would use to invest, is likely to generate income? Interesting, in, in the Ludco case itself, the income that was relevant in that case was dividends, about $600,000 of dividends. But the interest expense claimed was significantly higher year after year after year. But the court held that it doesn't matter if you generate significant income, the quantum of the income doesn't matter. But the fact is, if you generate income, then you must have had a reasonable expectation of income. So you're borrowing to invest, right? That's what you're doing. You're borrowing to invest. And if you borrowed money at, say, Nesbitt Burns through your margin account, you would write off the interest expense in that case as well. Correct. Right? Um, and in most in most cases, right? Like mo most, you know, it depends what you're investing in. But as long as you're investing in something that's likely to generate income, you can always deduct the right. interest. And in Ludco, the income that came back was six hundred thousand dollars, but the interest expense claimed was six million dollars. Right? So it was Correct. a ten x factor. Correct. And the court said, doesn't matter. The key was that because dividends were payable under certain conditions. And they were likely, conditions that were likely to occur and therefore generate a payment of dividends, 
that was sufficient. Right. And in your case, this product's case, how do you solve for the likelihood of income coming back? We make the income absolute likelihood. We make it on the basis that as these portfolios, these notional portfolios I talked about earlier, as they grow over time, we choose a point in time in the seventh year, eighth year, ninth year, and tenth year. And we pay income based on how those portfolios have performed. And in fact, we choose a number which is virtually a 0% return or higher on the portfolio. And based on how well the portfolio performs, it will affect the quantum of the income. But based on historical numbers, it's virtually non-existent that you wouldn't have income. And therefore, it is a reasonable expectation to get that income. Correct. And the income likelihood is so high that it doesn't qualify as what the court would have referred to as window dressing. Right. It's not mere happenstance, but it's a high likelihood. Right. And this was considered adjudicated and put a pin in in Cassan. Cassan dealt with all of the issues of interest deductibility as well as a deferral of income. Uh, so that's interest deductibility. That's deferral of investment returns, gain, uh, tax on investment returns. And then the last big piece is conversion to... Uh, Mutual trust. fund trust units. Okay. Take and then us a donation. That. So there are a few steps we, we go through. Um, they're simple steps. We take care of them in the last year. But provided we're in a position, or I shouldn't say provided, we, we make sure that the loan is paid first so that investors know by the end of the 10th year, before they exchange their units, before they come to termination, their debt is fully retired. Mm -hmm. So the debt gets paid off through a mechanism of the partnership borrowing and doing a distribution out to the investors to pay off the debt. So come near the end of the 10th year, your debt is gone. Shortly after that, you will sign a document exercising your option to exchange your units for mutual fund trust units. By exchanging the units for mutual fund trust units, under normal circumstances, that would trigger a taxable event. That is viewed for tax purposes as a disposition or a triggering event. But provided you then take those units and donate them to a charity, a, a registered Canadian charity, within 30 days of the date that you exchange, we fall specifically within what I'll call an exemption or a rule in the Income Tax Act that says, although the exchange triggers a capital gain, the capital gain is taxed at zero. So you have a gain on the exchange, but you pay no tax on it. And then ultimately, the investment that no longer has debt, actually your part of the investment doesn't have debt, the partnership has debt for a period of time, goes to the charity. The charity liquidates early the following year. The debt is paid off to the lender, and the net proceeds go to the charity in cash. They liquidate, they get the cash, they receive the cash into their bank account, they then immediately issue a charitable donation receipt for the value of that cash, which is usable the year before because you've donated prior to year end. 
So in some of these donation structures, people worry about the sort of uh, value of the asset. Here we're talking about cash. The, the, the receipt you get is for the amount of cash the, the charity got. And we, we do that deliberately so there is no risk on right. determining what the true value was of what was donated. Right. We avoid that issue by having the charity in a position to receive the cash before they issue the receipt. Okay, so those are the three big uh, tax pieces in the structure. And the number one objection being it's too good to be true, the second top sort of question we get from people is, well, what if the tax legislation changes in that 10-year period? So let's talk about the probability that those three pieces have any legislative changes to them. You know, when you ask people to project forward <laughs> as to what law might be, it's a bit of an unfair question, but I'll wade into the discussion by saying this. Interest expense deductions are not just used by us. They're, they're part of the fundamental fabric of the tax structure in Canada and are used regularly by people who invest in real estate, invest in stocks, invest in bonds, invest in any of a number of instruments or assets. And it's there for a reason to design. It's designed to reduce the carrying cost on debt by creating a tax advantage and therefore inspire or encourage the economy to grow through a variety of means. So the likelihood that that will disappear when it's been so fundamentally entrenched, I think, is remote during the 10 years. You remind me, though, uh, so let's stop there for a second. There is a reasonableness requirement in there, right? Shell said the amount has to be reasonable. There has to be a reasonable deduction of interest expense. So tell us what Cassand does for that. Wasn't there comments about the reasonableness of the interest rate expense? So I have trouble not smiling when you <laughs> ask that question because we're faced with a paradox here. And the paradox is when we went to court on Kassan, we spent a lot of time and effort focusing along with the lender on what the appropriate rate should be for 10-year debt of this kind. And, and we hired a third-party expert who weighed in on it. And we ended up with a number just slightly below 8%. And we went to court on that issue, and CRA took a very unique position. They said that our interest rate was too low. And they spent the entire case arguing to the judge, and they brought in their own expert. We had three experts. They had one. Their expert argued, <clears throat> and ultimately the judge accepted his position, that in this type of structure, because there's annual additional advances of debt and there's an extended period of time, ultimately the interest rate should be no less than 10% for a 10-year loan. No less than 10%. But he also, based on CRA's expert, he said it should have been 10 to 14%. Did, did it matter to him what the interest rate environment was at the time? So what's the interest well, rate environment his... in 2019? Rates are zero, right? Rates, at the time that that transaction was done, the prime rate, if it's for one measure, was 2.5%. Okay. And yet he was convinced and argued vigorously that the rate here should have been 10 to 14%. Right. And now rates are higher. and So ultimately, the judge agreed, and rates have gone up since then. So we set our rate based on the judge's findings on accepting the, the submissions of their valuator. 
Okay, so uh, that's good. That's good on reasonableness. And we've talked about the prospect of a legislative change to the deductibility of interest when you're going to invest. The only thing we didn't say, talk about, is even if you take the position that in theory they could change any of these relevant laws, the real question is the likelihood it would have retroactive effect. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it's helpful to raise that. I don't know if you... but But... It's one thing for there to even be a change of law on these issues, but it's clearly another thing to give that any retroactive effect. Yeah, we don't have a history from a legislative perspective of going backwards. Very when rare. It's, when it's case law, of course, it applies backwards. To the we'll, times. We'll talk are, about that. To the facts that are relevant. Right. Uh, okay, so that's that piece. What is the prospect of a change to the forward agreement, to the deferral of um, gains to the end of the period? I mean, that's been around a long time, and it's very fundamental. That's been used most widely by the largest Canadian banks. The largest Canadian banks have used forward contracts for structuring, and in particular have sold um, billions of dollars of linked notes, which are based on the same concept. And for many, many years, they sold them on the basis that if you held it to maturity, it would defer all the income to maturity, and then at maturity would generate full income. But then they miraculously triggered for the majority of their clients the opportunity to sell those units before maturity and trigger a capital gain, which made it more tax efficient. So a number of years ago, I think it was back in 2016, the law changed, specifically on that issue, which said if you have a linked note, it doesn't apply to a forward contract, but if you have a linked note and you sell it before maturity, it's going to act like it has full income. Mm -hmm. But that, was, that change was not retroactive. It was on a forward-going basis that only impacted the characterization of the income at maturity. Which doesn't matter because in our case, we're converting it. So let's talk about that piece. What is the prospect that this idea of a conversion and donation doesn't continue to have the treatment it has today? The, I think the best way to address that is to look at how it came about and why. And over the last number of years, there has been there have been additions to the relevant section of the act that creates a wider opportunity to donate assets certain investment assets tax efficiently and the reason is that charities have been suffering the government is aware of it they're looking for ways to encourage wealthier investors to get a tax benefit walk away from their investment and give it to a charity right. and in fact there's been a lot of discussion of expanding that to even further choices beyond what we have today. But back in roughly 2018, uh, sorry, no, 20, what was the year? I guess it was 2008. Um, that was when the government expanded the rules, added what was called Section 38A.3. And A.3 was specifically the section we rely upon. And what did it say? It said, for investors who've invested in limited partnership units, where the limited partnership unit value based on the investment has grown, where there's been capital appreciation. Even though these are non-publicly traded units, we're going to encourage you as an investor to give it to a charity, and we're gonna facilitate it in a mechanism that you exchange your units for mutual fund trust units first, which effectively makes them quasi-public because they're, liquid they're able to be liquidated on a moment's notice. 
and then you donate those to a charity, which then has the right to immediately liquidate them. And that satisfied their policy objective of creating a whole new basket of assets that could go to charity. So you have to ask yourself the question, in an environment that continues to be very difficult for charities, where the government is under pressure to find new and additional opportunities to donate investment assets to charities, is this something they're likely to take away from charities when it's been accomplishing a reasonable result? In fact, when, the, the, when it first came out, it was announced only for a period of time. There was a sunset period that after, I forget the amount of time, a year or two, three years, we'll look at it, we'll see how it's working. After that time passed, government stood up in the House of Commons and said it's working. This is all recorded. And we are now going to make it permanent. So no more sunset clause. So I think, and I think most people in the industry would agree with me, the likelihood of that being taken away during this 10-year period is probably reasonably low. And so... Uh, what happens if one of those big pieces changes? What's your reaction going to be? How do you... Well, the, in any one of them, it's easy for us to unwind. So if the change is the ability to deduct interest, we unwind using exchange and donate earlier than the 10 years. If they take away the deferral of income, which I think is unlikely, but they do, we unwind. So then the question is, what happens if they take away the unwind mechanism? which is the way we get out safely and tax efficiently. The answer is, historically, not only have changes like this not been made retroactive, they've been grandfathered for a period of time, meaning the government announces it and says, you have three months, six months, nine months to terminate existing programs or products or structures or investments which were relying on this, but it will end at this date. So if they announce it, in the budget in February, March, or April. Or on Halloween 2006 with the unit trusts, right? Didn't they give those they three them, years they to They gave transfer? them a period of time. Yeah. Okay. So that is the most likely result. Right. And, and when I, you say unwind, you're talking about, okay, there's a big change in year five. Everybody's already received their big interest deductions every year. So you're still way ahead. And then we're closing the program after five years. There's, there's just, there's no there downside. There should be... Add no adverse effect. Right. You're not going to have the growth in the portfolio, so you're not going to grow, uh, donate so much to charity, but that's a small part of the economics, right? We can still use the exact same three-step mechanism. Pay off debt, exchange the units for mutual fund trust units, donate. Right. The word that comes up for me all the time is elegance. This thing is so <laughs> elegant, really. Okay. Thank you for that. We're going to switch now to use cases. So let's talk about, um, you know, I, I practiced law in the 90s. Uh, my, some of my friends are still practicing. And I say to them, this product is perfect for you, right? You have this very high, very visible income. You understand what it means to work inside the tax legislation. You understand it, what it means to have a case adjudicated and not appealed and to be the subject of minutes of settlement and to have an opinion. So <clears throat> let's walk through what it is to this particular um, purchaser from a personal perspective and also their professional corp where they can hold uh, all of their partnership units. 
And specifically on that one, I want you to focus on the CDA at the end of the piece because that's a huge benefit of it. So let's think about talking to uh, a lawyer and what you might say to them about how this works for them. Well, let's start first with what is still probably a common case where somebody doesn't have their own company and they're simply taking the income personally. I still think there's a lot of lawyers who may be in that position. Or, or they got to flow some of it. If, if all their units are owned in the PC, they've got to pay themselves just living costs. Right. And living in Toronto is half a million bucks for sure, right? So you have this whole bunch of income taxed at marginal rates. For you receiving your income at the high rates and having to pay tax on there aren't a lot of other options. Right. And there's certainly not a lot of other safe options to every year, year after year, knowing you're going to have consistent income, knowing you're going to practice for another 10 years, 12 years, 8 years, 15 years, you know better than I do, each person's different. This is an ideal scenario to be able to every year generate significant cash flow for whatever purposes. Is it to for further investment purposes, for pay for summer camp for your kids, pay for whatever you need, pay down non-deductible debt on your mortgage, whatever situation you're in, it's very powerful. The, the thing that actually works so much better for somebody, a partner at a law firm, is they pay by quarterly installments. Right. And so they don't have to wait to get a refund at the end of the year. As soon as they acquire these units, they are able to take the deduction they know they're going to have this year and claim it to reduce their quarterly installments immediately. So they get immediate cash flow. Instead of paying 50,000 for a quarter, which you may have, may have to pay, or 250,000. I never thought about that. Is yes. that an application? That, do you have to fill out a form for CRA or is that no. the firm level? You don't fill out anything because you're deemed to have an obligation every year to pay your quarterly installments based on one of two bases. Number one, based on what you paid the year before. Right. Or alternatively, based on what you know or believe it's likely to be this year. Wow. So if suddenly you know you're going to have 200000 of deductions you wouldn't have otherwise had, you can immediately apply them to reduce your quarterly installments. So you don't have to wait for a refund. There was a time that non-quarterly installment payers, we used to be able to apply for a waiver. Right. And I'm not I'm sure that about. they're... Right. Really available. Okay, the so they're paying quarter. They're cash flow positive immediately. That's great. Okay, let's keep walking. And through I this. think the same would apply corporately because um, they're going to be paying maybe monthly installments, and I, I I would assume that they can reduce their installments based on they either pay based on what it was a year before, or they pay based on what they now believe it's going to be pro rata month after month after month. And the, the proof is ultimately when they file their tax return at year end and find that they actually don't owe money, right. that establishes right. the validity of the position they've taken. All right, so let's say somebody's making a million and a half. Uh, it all goes into their corp. They take out half a million to spend. They want to protect a good portion of that half a million. So they want to buy how many units in their personal name, so, let's say? There want to be, we always like to be conservative. We want to make sure that investors don't run afoul of, of uh, alternative minimum tax rules, which limit to an individual the amount of deductions you can claim. So there is a rule of thumb, even though the calculation is somewhat complex, there is a rule of thumb that you can shelter roughly 40 to 43% of regular income before you start to hit 
the minimum tax threshold, which is the level at which if you go below, deductions are pushed to a future year. Right, you still get them, they're just pushed off. So let's use, the, let's use my example, somebody's spending 500 grand a year. They're drawing out of their corp by comp. So we'll just so use forty percent, two hundred thousand. Two hundred grand. So Taking I want to buy two hundred thousand of deductions. So I want to buy fifty units. If I'm that lawyer, I want to write you a check for fifty thousand dollars in the first year by fifty units. My deduction in year one is going to be about two hundred thousand uh, dollars. The only, the my only caveat to that scenario is the following. Deductions on this structure increase year after year. Right, okay. So you want to make sure that you estimate or are comfortable with your future income as well. So depending on your comfort level, we may choose the fifth year, sixth year, or seventh right. year. What are those deductions? And let's calculate on that basis. So in your example, you wouldn't buy 50 units. You might buy 42. Right. And be more conservative. Right. Some clients don't care because they know they can push forward deductions. Some do care. We always raise it, and we tend to do a conservative analysis and say this is what we recommend as the optimum. Right. So that's an issue to consider because this is a very powerful financial planning tool as long as it's used properly. Okay, so in this case, I've drawn out 500 grand. We've inoculated that at an appropriate level, and now there's a million left in my corp. I've got to pay 26 and a half cents on that from dollar one because I'm part of a partnership. So I'm going to pay $265,000 in corporate tax in my PC. If, however, I buy some units in my PC, walk through that with me. So there the, the issue, the, the sensitive issue is what is the tax rate? Because the value of every dollar of deductions you that accrete to you from this structure are usable and their value is generated by the tax rate they're using again. So when we were talking earlier of the individual, he or she is going to be at 53.53%, the highest marginal tax rate in all likelihood. Once you get into the corporation and you start to get down to a 26% rate, it becomes a little bit different of a scenario. We have to look at what value is generated from those deductions versus the cash you put in every year. Right. And what we found is that at about 26%, the cash flow value year after year tends to be more marginal. Where you get the huge benefit is at the end, when it terminates, when it unwinds, because there's a, a hidden additional value in these structures, such that when you exchange and donate, when you trigger that capital gain that I talked about earlier, because it is taxable at a zero, a rate of zero, the Income Tax Act allows you to take the value of that capital gain, which is significant. On 10 units, it's, I believe, about $580,000, right. roughly. That goes into what's called your CDA account. And the CDA account is effectively an account that allows you to draw out tax-free money from your company. It's a capital dividend account. You can draw out tax-free money from your company to the tune of that $580,000. That is a huge hidden benefit for a corporation that wouldn't otherwise exist. Now, to the extent that you're actually looking at a holding company. Okay, but stay, stay with the PC for a sec, because I want this lawyer to understand what's gonna happen. Every year for 10 years, 
I'm not gaining much because I'm taking a 26.5% obligation and taking it down to about 8. I'm neutral. I'm a little better than cash flow neutral on that 10-year period. So we can absolutely run the numbers for right. you and you'll have some years you're slightly negative, some, but you're, you're not worse off. Right. But you have the big value at the end. But here's at the end. I now get to strip 580,000 of retained earnings. Legally. For zero, I, I was going to have to pay 47.74, I think. It's, it would be, uh, th those would be eligible dividends coming out, right? And I would be, or no, I'd be 39 on those, sorry. I'd be 39 and change on those. So instead of paying 40% on 580, so 232,000 to strip out that 580, I'm paying nothing. Correct. So... In my personal account, we walk through this. We write checks for 128. I get 350 back. I'm up 225. In my professional services corp, I got not much on the cash flow every year, but I get an extra 232. They're almost the same, right? right. And you know you're going to have that need to strip out retained earnings at the end of the life of your PC because you're building it up every year. So the other huge advantage corporately is you don't have to worry about minimum tax. So there's no okay, restriction right, right. on how, how much of your income in your hold co or in your corp okay. that you can shelter. So, so if I was recognizing a million bucks, I could do, what would I do? Um, I think if you were to I got a million estimate that your income every year, you could, I mean, you're going to be able to, it's adjusted upwards over the 10 years. So right. if you start at a million... You're going to get to, and you were to shelter that in the first year, assuming you bought early in the year. Next year, it's going to be a million one. How many units do I have two. to buy to shelter a million? Uh, 250? Uh, 40,000 yeah, yeah, for 10. Probably. So if I buy 250 units, I got to write a check for $250,000. I'm going to have a deduction in the first year of a million dollars. And I'm going to recognize a million dollars. So there's no 26.5% on that. So I just saved myself 265. I wrote you a check for two fifty. I'm up fifteen thousand dollars. And how much CDA am I going to have on two hundred and fifty units? I'm going to have twenty five times five eighty. Yes, you're going to have twelve million bucks worth of CDA. In that sense, it's a very powerful tool. It's like the only tool you really. Uh, let me think about that. I, I know so many guys who work super hard and live in Toronto and spend every dollar. Right? You don't. You, kids in private school and cottages and whatever life gets and, and then they start doing taxing. some planning <laughs> they start doing some planning at the end you put this in place you can strip 12 million dollars you're done right okay let's talk about one more element of this and i don't exactly know do do, do lawyers do passive investing inside their pcs or do they send the money up to a hold code to do the passive investing up? they're going to have money built up in this in their corp, I, right? Yeah, so I, if they passively invest, they make money if they get, they pay at 50.2. So this becomes just like an individual deduction. On the, yeah, on the passive income, correct. But but somebody just whispered to me that they kick those assets up to a hold co and invest passively in a hold co because they don't want the liability from the PC. Is that your understanding? 
I'm not really. Okay. I think it would depend on so the advice have to they're getting. Yeah. We'd have to, I think we'd look at each scenario, yeah. see how we could optimize it. I mean, anyway, min-case scenario is this gigantic this, extraction. This is a product that works across the board on several levels, but we will tailor it to an individual-specific circumstance. Right. So we would work with their accountant, figure out what is the optimum value that we can generate, and go from there. And I mean, I just love pitching it to them because they get it immediately. You, you, you quote Canada Trusco or some, some of the elements of this program to a civilian and they don't really appreciate what it means. You quote it to a lawyer and they say, I get it. So, so let's talk, uh, I'd like to talk about if you're talking to a lawyer and the lawyers are traditionally known to be risk averse. I always, I always pause on that. I don't know why, but let's go with that. Okay, so let's say they are. There's really only there's two issues to look at here. Commercial exposure. Okay. Which is really restricted or limited to. I don't the, see any here. The debt. But the debts, it's limited recourse and it's cash collateralized. Like the, correct. You, you, so once they understand that because it's limited recourse, which is a legal restriction. Plus, there's the practical, factual deposit of equal cash sitting with the lender matched at an interest rate. Right. I don't think it's hard for them to realize they don't have to worry about sleeping at night. They're right. not going to be exposed on their loan. So that you can okay. take the commercial risk off the table. Okay. So then the question is, what's their perception of the tax risk? Okay. And I think there are, across the board, different types of lawyers, but there is a perception out there that CRA today isn't following their own rules. That CRA, in my opinion, I won't necessarily put the words in other people's mouths, but in my opinion, they're not afraid to be or act like a schoolyard bully. That they will take positions that are unsupportable to aggressively threaten and create fear that is unreasonable. So how do you, how do you deal with that? And the way I think, and I think you may or may not agree, but we're in a different position than any other tax shelter. And we need to get this concept across to people. You're in a vastly different position for a structure that has not been adjudicated, that has not received a decision of the tax court that addresses every single issue related to the annual interest deductions and the deferral of income. So it's been adjudicated. It hasn't been appealed, which means now it can't be appealed. It can't be appealed for years now. So in the absence of a change of law, it is the law. Plus the minutes of settlement. Plus the minutes of settlement. Plus the opinion that says this product is within the parameters of the Cassan case. And I have to say what's, fa what's very powerful about our situation is the Cassan case isn't somebody else's case. <laughs> It's not right, like we're right. taking Cassan and we're right. saying we're building a product around Cassan and then telling the world that we know what we're doing. Right. And we're just merely, merely recreating Cassan. The answer is Cassan was our case. Cassan right. was Equigenesis. Cassan reviewed in minute detail all of our contracts, all of the cash flow elements, the structural diagrams the underlying law that applied to the factual elements of the structure and said it works on all those relevant levels. So we're not borrowing from somebody else. We know this case and the structure inside out. That has to create a significant level of comfort. 
So then add to that the settlement agreement, which says whether whether the Minister of Revenue and the CRA likes what we do or not isn't really the relevant issue. The issue is they accepted it. They accepted it in writing. They applied it after one year of discussion and negotiation and signing a document 100 pages long. They applied it to hundreds and hundreds of our clients in different years and different programs. So they've accepted in a very tangible way that this works. So again, absent a change of law, what position is the CRA in if they suddenly reverse their position, which is a fear that a conservative person might have? And I don't think that's an unwarranted fear. You can't say CRA is never coming back and auditing this again. They they have a track record of doing reasonably bombastic things. So, <laughs> so maybe that's going to happen. So, but But what gives the lawyer comfort is, well, I know how this ends. This ends with us winning. Because the law is still the yeah. law. But I'll add one more thing. We have proven over more than 20 years that we will be there to defend our That's investors. for sure. Yeah. We will be there. As long as Ken Gordon's alive, yeah. we will be there to defend our investors. And, and you know what? We've done it time and again. Zach and Gordon's coming up, results. so we're all good. <laughs> uh, okay, I think that's good for the lawyers. Thanks very much for listening. We'd love to hear from you. If you have questions or maybe you have something to add to the conversation, we're at redjacket.ca. And on the website, you'll see the phrase relationships matter. We really believe that and encourage you to start one with us. Thanks again for listening.